The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. All right, all right. Hi, everybody. How are you doing? It is, uh, what time is it? It is 1.10 in the morning, East Coast time, and uh, Sunday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day, you filthy animals. Uh, this is the UFC 258 post-fight show right here on the Morning Combat channel. My name is Luke Thomas. I am from CBS Sports as well as Showtime. I am one half of the hosting duo of Morning Combat. We do that show Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 11 a.m. live right here. If you are new here, please consider uh, giving the video a thumbs up and hitting the subscribe button trying to drive those subscriptions. So happy you're tuning in and happy to get to this. I'm assuming if you're here, you don't want spoilers, but just the same, this is your last warning. I will start spoilers after the stinger airs. And I will also tell you that, um, what else? Yeah, we'll go for about anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour, probably somewhere around the 45 minute mark. Um, obviously we want to save the majority of our analysis for Monday, but this is at least an instant reaction to everything that you, uh, just saw at UFC 258. Okay. All right. With that in mind, let's get this party started. Shall we? All right. And we're back. And then you can see the, uh, subscribe thing there. Okay. So we'll go over the main event, we'll go over the co-main event, and then sort of sundry other pieces uh, therein. If you have a question that you want to get to, you can tweet me, at LThomasNews, and we'll see if I can find the uh, questions after the fact, and we will take a look there, okay? All right, let me turn this off here. Okay, very good. All right, so I'm assuming if you're here, you are okay with the spoilers, and with that in mind... Let us begin. UFC 258 took place, of course, at the UFC Apex facility in Las Vegas, Nevada. Your main event, Kamar Usman fought Gilbert Burns for the UFC welterweight title. Kamar Usman wins via third round TKO at 34 seconds, in fact, into the third. I have his data as well from Fight Metric up here. Um, I will look at that in just a sec. Actually, I perused it a little bit earlier, but we'll go over that in just a second. What are some of the big picture stuff? Man, first of all, um, incredible moment, I should say, for Kamaru. Let me pull up this stat if we can. Uh, where is it? Where is it? Okay, I saw what's-his-face have it. It was, uh, we'll pull it up. It was Mike Bond, but really, um, you know, with this moment... Uh, this is a rarefied air that Kamar Usman has put himself into. Um, he has 
fighters with the most consecutive UFC victories. He has 13 now, uh, which is the most ever uh, in the UFC welterweight division. You know, we're coming up on, I'm not going to say St. Pierre territory, but we're, if you look at the history of the welterweight division, in fact, I tweeted this earlier, um, they tend to keep their titles longer there. They don't play as much hot potato as some other divisions. In fact, if you look at successful defenses per undisputed championship, uh, welterweight has more than literally every other single division except flyweight. But flyweight, of course, had Demetrius Johnson as you know not their only champion, but one of us, what one of two, or something. Him and Figueredo, or no, uh, Suhudo would be three, and so he had that long streak. That's going to fudge the math a little bit. But of mature divisions, you know, it's about three. They tend to hold on to this, and so this is now part of the reign of Kumaru Usman. You're talking about one of the great welterweights now. Um, uh, uh, in the narrowed pack about who has done a lot as a as a champion. So you're talking about Militich if you want to include some of the older parts of that division. You're certainly talking about Hughes, St. Pierre. Um, I don't know if I'd put Lawler in there necessarily, but I would absolutely put uh, Woodley in there. And now Usman is part of that conversation about the broader greats inside that welterweight division. He is He is simply part of that. And for a lot of good reasons. First thing first is, uh, first things first I should say, Gilbert Burns absolutely putting it on him first. Part of what makes a champion is not just the ability to win at a high level, but what you have to do to win. And very good fighters, as the coach of someone like Kamara Usman has pointed out, they don't really make mistakes, or they're not really forced to make mistakes. And it's not exactly like Kamaru made the world's biggest mistake, but he did get caught uh, with some of the big shots, with the fast shots from Gilbert Burns. Burns was lighting him up early. And so now you're in a bad spot, but it's the ability to work through those moments, take your time to bleed the clock, find a way around it, and then you have to switch things up pretty quickly. You know, for example, when Henry Cejudo was getting leg kicked to pieces by Marlon Moraes, I mean, I thought, I, I don't know how he was walking after that fight. You remember, he just began to crowd him and force him backwards and fight inside the boxing range. And when he did that, the fight just turned. So he took a beating early and then just found a way to to stop it pretty quickly thereafter. So for that grit, that initial grit that Kamara Usman had and the composure, the bearing through a very difficult series of moments, being hurt multiple times, especially in the opening frame, probably not expecting it, taking a second to get your adjustment, and then to come out there in the second and win it pretty convincingly. And then to go out there and just 34 seconds into the third, you know, it's, it, that's that's a champion, folks. That's what champions do. They usually don't make mistakes, but when they get caught, you know, where they make an egregious mistake, which is even rarer. But, you know, they fight. A, if, if you're a champion, you're usually going to be fighting only the very best or something pretty close to it. We could all agree Gilbert Burns, number one contender, at least at the moment in which the fight was taking place. Um, and, you know, you get caught a little bit in one of those scenarios, one of those very good fighters. And you're able to work through that and then strategically adjust uh, after that point. Man, that's that's really special stuff. That's really special stuff. And if you look at Kurt Colby Covington, he outstruck another wrestler. If you look at Jorge Masvidal, you know, not the best fight, but certainly neutralizing of a guy he wasn't especially prepared for. Um, he took the title from Tyron Woodley, again, one of the great welterweights uh, of, our, of our time. 
and he did that with wrestling and overall domin- uh, overall dominating force and just other guys he would beat with record amounts of I think he was the he's the only other fighter since Cain Velasquez in a single fight to score a hundred significant strikes and ten takedowns which he did against Rafael Dos Anjos. I mean, just absurd levels of offense. You know, the reality about Kamaru is he gets labeled like a bit of a wrestler. And of course, that you know, it, it's not t- altogether an unfair assessment of him. I don't, you know, this is predominantly what he has done up to this point. But it is also worth acknowledging, especially you've seen it through his championship tenure, uh, there are many dimensions to his game that do not get accounted for properly. I mean, I think that's sort of just a reality we have to kind of sort of face at this point. And part of that is because he didn't get to show a whole lot in the Jorge Masvidal fight. But two camps in with Trevor Whitman. So let's talk about the fight itself. How was he able to do it? As we mentioned, you know, you can praise the early bearing that he showed under under intense duress and fighting and, and, and good offense from Gilbert Burns. But the way he was tactically able to, to turn it around a little bit is one, uh, he was able to catch some of the kicks of, of Gilbert Burns. Um, two, he was landing kicks of his own. Uh, and then three, some pull counters he was able to get. So the punch comes, he pulls, and then fire. But of course, the story of the fight as it stands today, and I'll have a chance to break it down and look at more of the detail, was the jab. And not just the jab from one hand, his his uh, his 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 power hand is his right, so he wasn't just jabbing with his left. He would switch 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 stance and then jab with this one. And I think a part big big part of the reason why he's doing that is he's trying to get off at an angle and then line himself up for a straight shot down the middle by virtue of some of that switching and then outside or inside stepping, depending on which way he's going. You can get off angle, get out of the way, keep yourself safe, and then you can step in there. And if you've switched and you've done it in a convincing number of ways, or you have snuck it in there, and they didn't take a mental note of it, or they took a mental note and they slowed down, but whatever the case, and then you line up in that space, and they just, they're just they not really you know in tune with what they should be doing in that moment, and he fired it straight down the middle, and he's got power. Obviously, you can tell. It's impressive, man. It's really impressive. He doesn't exactly have the prettiest movement on the feet like a St. Pierre did. St. Pierre had one of the best uses in the welterweight history of the jab when he broke Josh Koscheck's face and then just jabbed him to the point where Koscheck couldn't even fly home. He had to get his face repaired and healed to a degree before he could even get on a plane because of the pressure that was in his face. And, uh, you know, he had this real polished, beautiful technique. It's not like Kamaru has bad technique. Uh, certainly that would not be the case at all. But he doesn't show, at least in some of those situations, this really like dynamic, cleaned up, super polished level of technique. It's very good, but it doesn't have the same, you know, aesthetic dynamism or something. But the reality is it's insanely effective. Insanely effective. To be that powerful... And the way that he is, and the timing was good. Did you notice on that last one that knocked him down? He wasn't just catching him at an angle. I think he wasn't expecting, um, and certainly from a position he wasn't expecting. But he split his timing too. You know, that was the other part about it. It's like, dude, that, th- those are the things when you can be like, how do you know one guy is really good? Well, you know, you put up that many wins in the way that Kamar Usman has, and okay, you can you can just sort of say it. You know nothing about fighting. But the other part of it is, dude, if you're able to switch stance and then even out of your normal stance, you can still split a guy's timing with your jab. Dude, that's very hard to do. That's very hard. Those are, those are high-level skills that only really advanced fighters um, can reasonably use in a contest. And, high, and to do it in a UFC title fight like that is, 
is uh, is pretty remarkable. And and then I also, you know, uh, you saw this in the Demi and Maya fight, just nowhere even trying to engage with Gilbert Burns on the ground. He knew that was a no, a no man's land. He didn't need it either. It was there maybe if, you know, things got really rough on the feet, but he didn't really need it. Um, and he was able to control a, and, and burn off a lot of time off the clock by virtue of sort of holding the feet and you know, kicking under the legs, especially in the first round. He got away with a ton of time for that. Herb let that go for a really long time. Um, so that was really interesting, the way he was able to do that. But for Kamar Usman, I want to look at some of his numbers here, if I may. He's come to us from Fightmetric. Let me um, refresh because I know that they, these might not be finalized as it stands. So Gilbert, so Kamar Usman threw a total of 140, excuse me, I should say, yes, landed a total of 93 significant strikes, burns just 55. He whiffed on three takedowns. The takedowns, though, for folks who are like, why did Burns shoot? The reality is, dude, he wasn't going to take Kamaru down unless Kamaru was like really badly hurt. But if you can, if you can level change enough and you can bring their hands down because you've established a credible threat, you can then fake like you're going for a takedown and then you can go upstairs. It's just to facilitate his stand up. It wasn't to actually take Kamaru Usman down again. Not, not in all likelihood. Uh, if you look at the numbers for Kamaru Usman in terms of how much he attempted in the first and second round, he was barely outstruck from a an effort standpoint in the first, but he was uh, overwhelming in the second. And more to that point, in the second round, he had attempted 65 significant strikes. Usman had only landing 39 of them. That's still a lot. But if you go back and you look at his Jorge Masvidal fight, and then you look at his overall output, he beat his overall output in this fight. That was when, that was that was what that was five rounds. Um, you know, here's here's Kamaru. Uh, you know, by the fifth round was only attempting 21 significant strikes. You know, this was where we just said in the second round he attempted 65. So in many ways, three times the level of output uh, in certain ways. So much better, I think, from Kamaru for the fans to get behind him in that way. Um, and again, in terms of like the target location, 67% to the head, 13 to the body, 19 to the leg. Yeah, one out of five strikes targeting the leg. That's interesting. That's a little bit higher, I think, than normal. What did he have against Colby? It was mostly a striking affair. Yeah, just 3% to the leg. He didn't want to give him anything. I guess against uh, uh, Gilbert, in terms of like being able to get taken down, I guess against Gilbert he felt a little bit more comfortable that if this guy grabs the leg and tries to go for a takedown, I'll be just fine in the end. Seems like he didn't want to risk that against somebody like Colby, who if he gets a hold of your leg, that could be a problem that you don't really want to um, uh, invest in too much. Also, you know, let's just sort of state this. A lot of guys in MMA don't have great jabs. It's really great to see one. And here's the part why that's so relevant. It's like, dude, how many times, I think we talked about it before, either on this program or like a different morning combat Oh, you know, it was Volkov. I was saying on Monday's show, I really appreciate that Alexander Volkov fights tall. right? A tall guy that uses height and reach to his advantage rather than just being a novel factor of the fight. Well, here you go. Um, Usman had a five-inch reach advantage on Gilbert Burns, and he used it. He was the, he was the rangier fighter, and he fought with greater command of the range. He was getting the jab off early. He was getting it off often. Part of the jab in terms of what it was doing in, term, in the disruption was 
you know, not merely landing on Kumaro and that hurting, that was a big part of it too. But, you know, if I'm getting popped before I can really do anything, I got to start that process over. And if I'm getting split between my timing, now I don't even know when it's coming. So part of it is just, yes, it hurts. The other one is it's Gilbert couldn't quite get right. And if you're getting your timing split and your rhythm disrupted, you might start resorting to shots that aren't set up as well. You are resorting to a hurried up kind of, scattershot offense because you don't want to wait around too long to get your face punched, your rhythm broken, and your timing split. And you saw some of that add up a little bit in the second round as well. Here was a Kamaru that was a little bit more deliberate with the particular weapon he was choosing, and it was having a tremendous effect. And I think you saw something of a, I won't say desperate, but more desperate uh, attempts in the second round at offense, certainly compared to the first for Gilbert Burns, but it's just finally good to see, like, how do you know MMA striking is coming a long way? Guys, I can't tell you how many times years would go by. You see, like, a major height, and in this uh, this case, a reach differential, and it wouldn't necessarily show itself up in fights, and there's a lot of reasons why it wouldn't if they're wrestling or clinch fighting or something like that, but here it's like a guy used a jab and a five-inch reach advantage to tear apart his opponent. That is not a typical MMA story you can tell a lot. Certainly not outside the championship level. Of course, this was at the championship level. And that sounds a little obvious. Uh, you know, well, most guys should have a jab, but it doesn't work that way. This is how far MMA striking has to come, and this is kind of novel for him in the way that he's able to do that. But for me, I mean, to, to look at his resume, you know, is is ridiculous. This guy with now striking and and wrestling, and he can do both because he's done it in the Covington and now the Burns fight, uh, and then wrestling and then the Masvidal and then the Woodley fight. But, I mean, look at his name of dudes he's run through. Hyder Hassan, that was from the Ultimate Fighter. Leon Edwards in his second fight, he blanked him. Yakovlev was a, sort of this wiry guy he he gave too much trouble to. Varley Alves, Sean Strickland, Sergio Moraes, Emil Mech, who's another br- built-like-a-brick-shithouse guy. He got nothing going. Demi and Maya, Rafael Dos Anjos, Tyron Woodley, Colby Cumpton, Jorge Masvidal, and Gilbert Burns. This dude is cleaning out this fucking division, man. Not 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 totally, but he's pretty goddamn close. There's a couple of rematches maybe in order, but um, and, you know maybe the Edwards fight would go different a second time or something, or better for Leon than it did the first time. I don't know whatever you want to say, but dude, that is impressive. And, and, and you've never lost in the UFC, and you've been fighting there since 2015. Shit. You know, you could hear Kumaru's voice, too. He was quite angry with the whole thing. He was. He felt like people needed to put some respect on his name. Yeah, certainly I think as a guy who is deserving... To what extent is there a gap between how good someone is and how much they're appreciated during their era and their run? There's a gap here. There's a gap here. To some extent, understandable, because he's always had a bit of a weird interaction with the audience. And, of course, he's had a couple of performances that were... Um, understandable, I think, to anyone who is a connoisseur of fighting, but to, you know, the, uh, the overwhelming amount of casuals, it's not considered all that fun. And, you know, listen, I'm not going to sit here and say I had a, I had a joyous, amazing time watching the Jorge Masvidal fight either, but, you know, you can sort of understand when these guys are in desperate situations, they're going to respond to the incentives and the incentives at that point are win at all costs. So, to me, the story of this fight is Burns' speed, I think, is still going to give guys problems in this division. Um, I think that Kumaru showing the bearing that he did is going to be pretty special still. 
was it 18 fights into his career, at least inside the UFC, never been taken down. Um, got rocked here and was able to work through it, discover what worked best for him, and then simply apply it over and over and over again. This is the lesson I always try to tell folks about fights. If you go and watch any of my technical difficulties or previously dissected or even previous to that Monday Morning Analyst, what you begin to see in fights is what works is what you can repeat as a pattern over time. Not, not always. There are obviously going to be exceptions to that rule, but here's a general rule that I find over and over again. I will show reasons for why somebody won, and you'll watch them kind of slowly begin to apply it in the first, let's say it goes five rounds or something, and more of it in the second. And then by the third, they're usually hitting their stride, and then the fourth and the fifth are kind of academic. That's really the, that's the truth of fighting, is that somebody finds one or two things or some kind of combination of things that work really well, and they just go back to it over and over and over and over and over again. And with a jab from either stance, finding an angle, getting in the line that he needed to, getting out of the way, using that to dictate range with a five-inch reach advantage and big power behind it. Dude, it's amazing. It's a, it's a simple weapon, the jab, right? You're just pumping it out, but it's not simple. There's so much to it, how you throw it, with what intensity, with what stance in MMA, from what distance, for what purposes. Um, and what was interesting about this jab is the jab did have strikes that came behind it. You know, jab cross, jab overhand. There, there was some of that. But some of the more memorable uh, punches that dropped Burns were just the jab. There was no two behind the one. It was just one. Bop. Isn't that wild? There was no, there was no follow-up. It didn't need to be. The jab was doing not just the setup work. It was doing the finishing work in many ways as well. That is a pretty remarkable punch. That's a remarkable punch for a guy like that to have, given what we you know, traditionally know about his skill set being largely wrestling based. And that was the other part about it too that I was saying before the fight. BJJ Scout had made a really good point like you know if you look at the tactics for wrestling along the fence, it's not a very well developed side of the game. There's some development of it particularly on the on the defensive side, but there's not a, there's not much done in the way of innovation there from best practices. And Kumaru has a whole system there. He has decided, like, this is an underdeveloped portion of the game. So I'm just going to develop a whole system. And so there's this gap that's created by virtue of where he is putting his technical investments and innovations and where everyone else is. Um, Which isn't to say it's wrong to do those other things. There's probably a good reason to it. But if you can take advantage of where people aren't investing as much knowledge and attention and time, and you can use that to strong effect, you're going to have a pretty significant advantage. And you're you usually see that he didn't even need that here. Um, a little bit of a little bit of wrestling in the open space. I was I was surprised by the way that Burns was able to back him up as early as he did. I thought you know two ways you see Gilbert Burns um, losing if he's physically pressed against the fence or he's constantly backing up. You can back up a little bit, but if you're constantly backing up, that would be a problem. And at first, dude, that was not what was happening at all. Um, but even then, man. Kumaru didn't have to really use the fence this fight to get what he wanted. That is sort of scary. It's like he's got an open space game, and he's got a whole different game along the fence line. He's got a little bit of an ability to blend the two, I think it's fair to say. But um, you can't really argue that the fence played a dramatic role here in how Kumaru was able to win. And that's really not true for the vast majority of his other fights. So even at, was he 33? When was he born? Yeah, about 33 or so. 
uh, even with that, even with that, he is, you know, still learning. Interesting here. His strikes landed per minute 4.5, which is high. Strikes absorbed 2.23, nearly half. Takedown defense 100%. Striking accuracy 53, which is about right. Takedown accuracy 47%, that's about right. Um, takedown average per 15 minutes 3.38. He didn't even attempt one, or did he? He didn't get any, certainly. No, didn't even attempt a takedown here. Wild, man. That's a guy who is good for nearly four takedowns every 15 minutes, and in 11, he didn't even attempt a single one, and he still won via stoppage. Shit. <laughs> That's a good fighter. That's a very good fighter. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. That, that dude can fight. That is a talent. Jesus Christ. Um, all right, we'll come back to that here a little bit. That's wild. All right, let's see what else we got here. Uh, your co-main event. Alexa Grasso defeating Macy Barber. 29-28 uh, across the board, which I thought was the correct scorecard. Um, that's an interesting one, that one. Um, I thought that... Uh, I thought that Macy Barber had a winnable fight here. They were talking about the odds being interesting that it was in Grasso's favor, but I didn't necessarily... First of all, the odds were not like tremendously in Grasso's favor. There, She was a very moderate uh, favorite, and you can understand why. I mean, it would to bet on Barber, I think, especially given that she was an underdog, I thought that might have been an interesting bet. Um you know, just 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 in terms of odds, not up or down, who wins or loses necessarily. Like, is it worth taking a risk on someone who is an underdog, given what they were up against? You know, you knew that Grasso was a couple of things: a much more known commodity than Barber. Part of the issue with Barber is we just didn't know as much about her game as we should have. And then the other part is uh, Grasso's got a great jab and distance command, and has very good known takedown defense. Well, you saw all of that here. And then she added some wrinkles that when there, it did go to the ground, um, she had significant transition abilities that included holding on to submissions through different positions. You know, that's, it. that's, that's good stuff. That's really, really good stuff that she can do that. Um, the interesting part to me was here was Barber's basic challenge that she was trying to solve for. She was trying to set up a different angle to find her way into an entry, a different kind of set up a different look, and she was really far apart. And then when she would try to get closer and then and then faint or create some kind of a reaction, right, to get Grasso thinking one thing and then you do the other, that's what all high-level fighters do for the most part, she was not convincing. Like you have like fainting is a talent. Right, it's part. It's a it's a separate skill. People are not just equally good at fainting just because you put the effort into it. And it should be known, some people are better at reading these kinds of things than others. So it's a big dance that's going on here. But whatever the, the case, um, she just couldn't. She couldn't navigate that position. She could not. She could not make sense of that really at all. She would get close and do a little bit of the, of the movement, and you would watch Grasso just wait. I'm gonna wait. I'm not waiting on any of this other extraneous movement. 
I'm just going to wait on what really actually matters, whether she was looking for a shoulder or a foot or something. Who knows? But, um, and then she was constantly just timing her. The only way that Barbara was able to get around that, it turns out, was like really just kind of playing hurry-up, rush-you offense where Grasso doesn't have time to make reads and doesn't have time to... The kind of thing that like Kamaru was almost putting burns through towards the end where Grasso just has to react. And when you saw that, and, and also like, you know, I think Macy is physically strong and she was able to like do a lot of muscling around in the clinch. You know, making a fight just kind of like a, a, a you know, almost like a workout, but like a really, you know, brutal one where you're constantly having to fight someone off of you and, and they're in your face and blah, blah, blah. That seems to be like a very good, like that seemed to be like a, a potentially winning strategy for Barbara. But the problem is she didn't do it till like the last half of the last round. At that point, Grasso had already done all the great things we had uh, seen from her. She's 2-0 and now at flyweight. Certainly a much better place for her than... Um, than Straw. And so Barbara just came up short. So it was a decent, nice sprint at the end. Needed a whole lot more of that. Um, but it was interesting. It was like, you're too far away to land. Grasso knows it. And by the time you get close and you're doing whatever you're doing to uh, misdirect her, it didn't misdirect her. She could read through it. And so you were in a position where you might be able to dive in and land a big shot, but chances are they're going to land one on you first, or you're going to get, you know, you're going to get pieced up in the interim, and you're going to have a hard time and get increasingly nervous about, you know, making that distance closing. Um, you know, there's risks playing a game where you're constantly on top of them. You can get finished because you're being overcommitted. Like look at what Edgar did; he barely overcommitted, and someone like Sandhagen could just jump through the air and catch him with an up knee. You know, it's a little, that's, there's risks associated, but you already lost two rounds. I mean, that was like the first 30 seconds with Edgar. This is, you just, you just, you've lost two rounds. You're probably going to be losing that third round, maybe, if you don't do something drastic. And then trying to do that was, I thought, um, you know, better late than never and probably should have been uh, employed um, a little bit earlier. By the way, I'm getting a note here from one of the gentlemen, gentlemen, at Fight Metric, who's telling me not to worry too much about the Usman's leg kick count. Some of those are going to be um, leg kicks that he scored when Burns was on his back. So it's not exactly like, you know, targeting the dude in that uh, similar kind of a way. Um, looking at the numbers here, Barber's in a, in a tough spot, man. Two in a row here. And I was a hard, by the way, it should also be noted, that's a really hard fight to come back to from a layoff, you know, they didn't give her a tuned up fight by any stretch of the imagination, which, you know, okay, I get it. UFC doesn't do. It's hardly a new practice from them, but at the same time, it's like, Jesus, you know, this was not an easy fight at all for her. Um, given that kind of a layoff and that significant an injury that required that level of physical rehabilitation. So, um, something to keep in mind there. All right, let's see some else on these results here, and I'll come back. I don't have a whole lot to say about it. Kelvin Gastelum and Ian Heinish. Uh, Gastelum wins unanimous decision, 30-27, Heinish showing some technical improvement. The real issue here was Gastelum is the more uh, is superior technically. Um, Heinish much more of a motor. And so can you employ that motor in such a way to make up that difference that exists from the technical gap? Uh, and he was not. Uh, at least not enough. Anyway, he, he, I thought he did show improvement. And Gastelum got back in the win column. Not the kind of win, if you're Gastelum, that's going to tell the world that you're ready for a um, 
you know, to be considered a one of the very best in that division, but an important win, tough fought and hard fought win. Uh, and Heine showed improvement, but everyone kind of is what we thought they were from before the fight. This didn't really change a whole lot. Ricky Simone defeating Brian Kelleher, uh, unanimous decision across the board. He's simply too much. Um, Kelleher couldn't really uh, fight off the takedown. He was constantly trying to go for the guillotine. It didn't really work. And I thought that on the feet um, against the fence or even in open space, he was just a little too quick. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Uh, Julian Marquez, defeating Maki Tolo, nearly lost that one and found a way to come back and get it with going from a, 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 a guillotine and switching as he rolled through to an anaconda, which is the technical switch there. When they go belly down like that, to, the guillotine no longer works. You switch the grip and then go for the anaconda, which is what he did, and he got it. Uh, Julian Marquez out for a long time. Another guy wasn't getting much of a tune-up fight, but found a way to gut it out. He showed the exact same resiliency when he fought Phil Hawes during Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series. Um, he was getting beat up. Now, Phil Hawes is a very different fighter than Maki Patolo, although in this fight, much more wrestling from him. But Hawes was all over the guy. And uh, he just waited and waited, and, and eventually Hawes faded, and then you saw Marquez do what he did. Uh, he, he's got... He's got tenacity that that guy and he doesn't fade easy how about on the prelim card man Adolfo Vieira getting subbed I wrote this man I don't think people realize how big a deal this is there's been a couple of times where guys who were like you know good on the ground submitted people uh who were much better than them uh the biggest one I can think of before this would be when Mac Danzig submitted Mark Bocek. Mark Bocek at the time, one of the very best grapplers out of Canada, high-level black belt with some high-level medals to his name. And he, you know, Mac Danzig, I think, was a black belt, but in terms of pure jiu-jitsu, not in the same ballpark. But he got pieced up on the feet, and, you know, Danzig, good enough to take his back, certainly, and it choked him out. And I remember saying, like, there's no way Mac Danzig can sub Mark Bocek. Okay, not with pure jiu-jitsu for pure jiu-jitsu, but for MMA, yeah, actually, he totally can. So this one shouldn't surprise you. I mean, another one, I don't think he submitted him, did he? But Alan Belcher sort of undoing all the leg lock attempts of Husma Palharis. Palharis is another one. Um, but this is a big deal because if you look at other black belt world champions, um, and many of these guys don't even have their – and as good as they were in jiu-jitsu, many of them don't have the resume Adolfo does in jiu-jitsu. But if you look at like Jacare or – um, Fabricio Verdum or Demian Maya or Hadra Gracie, right? That's the kind of level we're talking about here. Multiple time, you know, in, in and out of the gi, world champions at the black belt level, like the no bullshit kind, right? So you want it in the gi, you want it outside of the gi, and you probably did it multiple times. Uh, none of those guys have ever been submitted in an MMA fight. 
not one of them. Uh, to get a submission like that, if you're Anthony Hernandez, is a huge deal. Huge deal. It, those guys don't quit very easily. You know, he and he was breathing hard after the first round. You know, Daniel Cormier saying it's about his muscles. I mean, I'm sure that plays a role, you know, but like, wow, man, that was, I thought, and, and by the way, Vieira put it on him earlier. Dude, let me explain something to you about mount. If somebody has mount on you and both of your arms are wrapped, so their arms are behind yours, right? They're wrapping you up. If someone has mount and they've got your arms wrapped and you can't move, I can't think of anything more big brother other than the submission itself. And, of course, there's a big gap between that. But in pure jiu-jitsu, I mean, in general, like in pure jiu-jitsu terms, if someone mounts you and wraps up both of your arms so that they're on the opposite sides of your body, dude, there is a wide disparity in skill. (laughs) A wide, wide disparity. You have passed their legs, which is a line of defense for them, and a big line of defense at that. You got past both of them. You now have a dominant hip position. Yours are on top of theirs. In the case of uh, Vieira, I think he was even grapevining them. And then on top of that, you have taken their other arms and you have scooped them up and then controlled them so that they're tightly in front of the other person. Dude, I mean, wow. For him to go from that position to ultimately same side, Pat Karan, Shabalat, Shamalayev style guillotine, is remarkable, is super, super remarkable. That's a huge win for Anthony Hernandez. Can't overstate that enough. It wasn't just like he landed a lucky shot. It wasn't like, um, you know, uh, there was some kind of injury or that there was a quick interference with the referee. Dude, this fight went to another round. And in the first round, Vieira had the most dominant of dominant positions Basically, that you can have. You can make a case that maybe it's more dominant if the person has chair sit behind you, and rather than their arms holding your arms, their body is behind the back of one of your arms, so you can't put it back to the mat, and then they'll control that for the arm bar, right? That's what they extend. You can make a case if they've chair sit up that high, then okay, that is more dominant, but you're splitting hairs at that point. That is a ma- he had him dead to rights. And somehow Anthony Hernandez fought out of it, found a way to get on the good side of things, gassed this guy, and then gave him a taste of his own medicine. Wow, man. That is a huge, huge wins. World champion level black belts like this, they don't tap very easily. Uh, and he got one. Pretty impressive. Bilal Muhammad defeating Diego Lima. Pauliana Viana defeating uh, Mallory Martin. She got an arm bar. Chris Gutierrez up at 140 pounds, defeating Andre Ewell. And then in the opener, Gabe Green defeating Phil Rowe. If you got questions for me at L. Thomas News, I will take them. Uh, let me see what we got here. Bump, bada, bump, 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 bump. Uh, Do you guys like that new camera? I didn't mind it. I don't think it was 8K. You, it was weird. It was a little bit overexposed because you could tell like if their back was kind of sweaty, it would wash out with the light. So the exposure was a little weird. I liked it because it gave you a depth of field. You know, the background was kind of blurry a little bit. The problem was the lens, you could tell, had a hard time focusing. Whether it was manual, I think it was auto. But the the lens would be blurry for a while, and then it would see. See, I got the Sony, though. Like, the Sony is, look how fast that autofocus is. Boom. And it keeps it, right? I mean, that's real. That's super, really good autofocus. Um 
they didn't have that or they it, whatever whatever they were using it just doesn't it wasn't as responsive so it's cool the way they used it i think there's going to be some more ways to play with that um but for a first time i thought it was fun Yeah, so it says, can you discuss the genius move of Usman kicking Burns' legs for so long so he could recover from the shot? Totally, totally. That was brilliant, man. Where he held on to the ankle and then kicked underneath. And dude, those kicks hurt. And not just that, he could come and spiral over the top, remember, for a shot to the gut without committing himself knee to the ground. He could rainbow over the top, land a hard body shot, and be right back out again by virtue of some of that control as well. That was really nice work from Kamaru. It kept Herb Dean at bay. Burns was happy to welcome him down there, but he couldn't really force him to go down there. And Kumaru could land meaningful enough offense um, while biding his time to, you know, uh, uh, clear his head or whatever. Really, really smart. Understanding the rules, understanding the moment, and understanding what the opponent will or won't do based on a series of circumstances. That was really, really good. Um, do you feel as though Usman is turning a corner with his popularity amongst the MMA community? UFC is seeming to get behind him more and more after fights like this, and Colby fans can do so as well. Yeah, a, a, a little bit, right? I mean, there, nothing matters more than just winning. Amanda Nunes did not get really all that popular despite beating Misha Tate, despite beating Ronda Rousey. Um, you know, you would, she didn't get the bump you thought that she might get. Like you see Poirier for a week or at least or even more was everywhere after beating McGregor, right? He was on Hot Ones and blah, blah, blah. Did a million interviews. Um, there was some of that for Amanda Nunes, but not as much as you might imagine. But just the accumulation. Yeah, and you throw in Holly Holm and you throw in Durandamy and you throw in Cyborg. And it just become the resume just becomes so overwhelming that would grow your brand. Uh, and by the way, her fights are exciting too for the most part, right? I mean, not in total, not in totality. But what do you guys say? Amanda Nunes is a boring fighter. She had some boring fights, but uh, you know, let he who is among those without sin cast the first stone. Um, so I think as long as he's dominating and as long as he's out there, um, you know, continuing to put forth impressive efforts. And continuing to win like this. Again, dude, Gilbert Burns was a real number one contender. No bullshit about it. And if you look at the rankings, let's pull them up here very close. Uh, and we'll see at welterweight where things stand. This is before the fight. So these would obviously have to be amended to some degree after. But Kumaru is still your champ. Number one was Gilbert Burns. Okay. Uh, Kumaru stopped him. Number two, Colby Covington. Kumaru stopped him. Number three, Leon Edwards. Kumaru beat him. Number four, Jorge Masvidal. Kumaru beat him. You have Wonder Boy out there sitting at five. Kiesa's is at six. Woodley, who Kamaru beat, is at seven. Debian Maya, who Kamaru beat, is at eight. Uh, Magni and then and Luke is sitting at nine and ten. So really, the only guys he hasn't beaten in the top ten are Luke and Magni, who are pretty far away from a title shot at this point, and Wonder Boy, who is close by virtue of default. Like. Kamaru's beaten all those other guys, so he hasn't beaten Wonderboy yet. That could be an interesting one. Although I suspect he'd find a way to get Wonderboy down, and that would be it. But you know, well, we'd have to see. But I mean, he has beaten a lot of different kinds of fighters. Um, Jorge Masvidal can do it all. Granted, it was short notice, but he was fairly limited against Kamaru. Leon Edwards, sort of a half position guy that's got new meta, wasn't able to do much at the time anyway. 
Colby Covington, a wrestler, couldn't get uh, a takedown off on him. Gilbert Burns, super well-rounded, brilliant jiu-jitsu. Kamaru stopped him inside of three. Yeah, man, like you just keep doing this. What are they going to say, man? You've, you have wiped out the top four. Matter, matter of factly, you have wiped out the top four. You have to go to the, to the fifth guy who is good um, and may get a title shot, sort of, but you have to go that far to find someone he hasn't even just wiped the floor with yet. Dude, that is crazy. That is crazy. If he wanted to, well, there's too many fights because it's it's Thompson and Kiesa and Magni and Luke. I would say in one year he could wipe out the rest of that division. He may not be able to do that, but he can with with two more fights this year. He could wipe out number five and number six, leaving just the only people he hasn't fought in that division, nine and ten. I mean, you know, at that point you have really just done the most amazing work. To me, it seems quite obvious that Kamaru could dominate GSP even in his prime. Your GSP is still going to be viewed widely as the welterweight goat. To me, this shows just how quickly MMA is evolving. Am I off on this? And how competitive a fight do you think it would be between them? We're talking about prime GSP or something? Well, I mean, now, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, these debates are hard to have because the record of achievement that George St. Pierre has is extraordinary. And you have to understand something about George. His skill set was very much ahead of his time. So he was doing things at the time he was doing it in ways in the totality and the uh, the depth of his skill that really nobody else was, certainly not in the way that he was. Um, so there's that. Um, that means I still think at a bare minimum he'd be very competitive with Kumaru. He had dogged takedown uh, ability. He could chain wrestle. He had good cardio. He was naturally strong as shit. He had an amazing jab as well. He had fantastic footwork. I think that, you know, if you had to ask me what's one really big difference between them, the footwork of, of uh, someone like George, he could go to boxing footwork where he's cutting a lot of angles with short movements. He could do the karate style a little bit. Remember, he was a Shotokan, I think it was um, Shotokan karate. He's a black belt. Um, so he could do, he could play some of those levels as well. But I also feel like you're right, dude. MMA, I mean, why is Kamaru, in, for the most part, getting an, uh, uh, an edge on his contemporaries, people who are now competing today? I, I mentioned before, it's this sort of system of fence wrestling that is underdeveloped from a technical exploration standpoint. He's explored it, and he's just ahead of the game. And then on the feet, um, he's, just a, he's just a hard guy to deal with because he's got uh, great command of range. He's heavy-handed. He's merciless. Uh, has an incredible motor. I'll I tell you what, it would be, you know, <laughs> if, if Kamaru won, it would be not the least bit surprising. If Kamaru finished him, it wouldn't be surprising. Um, but at the same time, you know, I don't think it'd be altogether crazy to say uh, St. Pierre could hold his own, especially prime St. Pierre, like the one who, you know, the one who beat Fitch or something. Even that wasn't necessarily prime St. Pierre, but, you know, something like that for sure. Considering Usman's performance tonight, how do you think a fight between him and Habib would play out? Ask you this since it was a hot hypothetical fight in the past. Did Habib's striking improve as much as Usman's considering he knocked down such a proficient striker as Connor? Certainly, I think Habib would have a speed advantage. And as you saw tonight, that's not nothing. That gave, that gave Usman some problems early. But dude, Usman is huge for that weight class. I think he could match the intensity of Khabib. 
And I think he could shut him down, to be quite honest with you. I just feel like the size difference. I think Habib would be quicker. I think he'd be a better scrambler. And I think he'd be lighter on his feet. But I just feel like it wouldn't be enough of a difference to overcome all of the other advantages that Kamaru has. Yeah, I do think Kamaru would win. I think we have to kind of give Kamaru that respect. He's, he's, he's something special out there, for sure. Someone says Burns' chin is very suspect. He couldn't take the shots that all of Usman's previous opposition could, aside from Colby, but that was five rounds. Or he's just gotten that much better under Trevor. Maybe. Maybe he had a bad weight cut. Um, could also be that, you know, I think we're underrating Kamaru's power a little bit. I think, again, if it's, if it's splitting your timing, you don't even, you're not even bracing for it, and it just crashes into you. There could be a lot of ways where... It's not just about Burns' chin being trashed that could help explain some of the ways in which he felt it. And by the way, you know, he, he rocked Kamaru's shit too. Usman's striking has grown quite a bit, this person writes. So has his confidence and therefore his natural power. Yeah, that's a good point. The more comfortable he gets, the more knockouts he'll get. He's long, rangy, and powerful, not to mention sniper accurate. Uh, yeah, all too true. Uh, some funny tweets. To state how unlikely that finish was, what is the mainstream sports comparison to seeing Vieira being submitted like that? Man, that is... Um, mainstream sport? I don't know. Something like, I mean, this is not fair, but it's like LeVar Ball actually beating Michael Jordan <laughs> at one-on-one. -on -one. I mean, it's not, it's not quite right, obviously. That's, you know, it's, that's not quite fair to, uh, not fair at all to Anthony Hernandez. But I'm just trying to, like, imagine somebody. I mean, the levels between them in that one sport is beyond description. And then, uh, you know, the guy refuses to make it about being in that sport. And fights another way and then comes back. And, I mean, and then after being in a horrible position, a really, really big brother position, and still got it done and still did the damn thing. Very, very impressive. Very impressive. Um, all right, let me see if there's anything else worth here answering. Um, put this up here. Subscribe. That'd be great if you did that. Thank you very much. Thank you kindly. Who do you see uh, Burns fight next? I don't know. Um, maybe Wonder Boy. Maybe they give Wonder Boy the title shot. I wonder what this might do to the UFC's plan for Colby and Jorge. You know, do they want to still make that fight, um, considering Usman might need contenders, or they just really want to build the Ultimate Fighter around that? Because then those guys have to fight, but then you're eliminating a contender. That that'll be that'll be fun to see how, how they play that game. That'll be interesting. I, I that's a that's a curious one. Either he has to get a rematch from somebody he's already wiped, or um, which includes Leon Edwards, which you could do, but he hasn't fought in forever. 
You could do Wonder Boy if you're talking about Usman. I understand here, but as the question was about Burns, but I'm just trying to think because Burns would be somewhere like a Burns Kiesa. You know, you could do that. Burn. You could do Burns um, Wonder Boy or Burns Kiesa. So that that's who's sitting at five and six is uh, Wonder Boy then Kiesa. So you could do that. That, that would be a thing you could um, try for, um, and and then see how it goes from there. But then again, if you go with the route of Wonder Boy, who the fuck is Usman gonna fight? You know, again, unless you just gave it to Leon, but Leon hasn't fought in forever, so it's a real sort of weird moment here where, dude, Usman just keeps beating these guys, <laughs> you know, and there's not enough in rotation working their way to the front of that division. That's why I like what Michael Kiesa is doing is so important because here comes somebody like pushing through the division. They need that. They need someone to give. They got to feed this beast. Kamaru, and they got to see what's going to happen with him. So, um, all these guys at the top kind of haven't had enough rotation to create some fresh contenders. That's wild, man. Someone says about the fans getting behind Usman. Definitely something to be said for fans eventually having to accept Howard begrudgingly your skill set if you just keep dominating the competition. It's the same with with uh, Mighty Mouse. You know, for the longest time, does he draw? Does he not draw? Do people care? Blah, 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 blah. And then at some point, dude, you're just starting to stack so many W's. Uh, you know, it doesn't change necessarily turn you into the world's most popular figure overnight. But there are just it, it, it has just this way of silently kind of killing off a lot of the undertow of questioning. It just kind of removes it. It just goes away. It doesn't mean it doesn't necessarily translate into like adoration. And I think that's what Kamaru's kind of lacking a little bit is he's get he went from like dislike to begrudging respect, and then the next level I think is adoration. How you get to there, I don't know. But in terms of silencing doubters, you know, I'm not sure what more the guy could do to get people to get to understand how fucking good he is. He is a talent, a legitimate one. Um, okay. Let's see here. So it says Herb Dean's been slipping lately. Dude looked like he was uh, fainting the stoppage. Uh, I didn't mind the stoppage in this one. He got close and then pulled back, but not too invasively like he did previously. I don't see this one as... I know what you mean. It wasn't as clean as it could have been. That's fine. That's true, but... You know, we, we should really go after these referees when we have a really strong reason to do that. This, to me, would not be a strong reason. Is Usman the biggest welterweight in the division's history? He's been taller and more muscle-bound than everyone he's fought. He's up there with one of the bigger welterweights. I, how big, precisely, I don't know. There would have to be a measurement of how big they got by the time they're actually in the octagon, and we'd be able to review that. But certainly, he's... One of the bigger ones. I thought Dana said it's Colby versus Leon two days ago. It's probably Wonder Boy next for Usman. I mean, Dana says lots of things, y'all. You know, here, here's my advice to you on things Dana White says. Wait for someone else to verify it. I'm not telling you what he says is wrong, but you're talking about a guy who... <laughs> uh, well, I should say, I'm not telling you what he says is always wrong. But you're talking about a guy where 50% of it is just not accurate and a guy who has formally lied on the record. Um, and then when 
challenged about it. It was like, who, who cares? No big deal. So will they make Colby Leon too? Maybe. Maybe. But they still have to figure out what they're going to do with the welterweight season they want. Or maybe that's the one that they'll make. And then Jorge Masvidal will do what? He needs to fight again too. So who's he going to fight? Nate Diaz maybe? I, mean, I don't know how any of this is going to work. But some of these slots have to get filled. Uh, and Kamaru, even then, you could do Colby Leon too. Winner of that would get Kamaru. And I guess he could wait for that? Maybe. Okay. I think that is enough. I said we were going to go about 30 minutes to an hour. Around an hour or so. But there is plenty more to come your way. On my personal channel, I'll have a breakdown of some of the fights from today. Uh, and then Monday, 11 a.m., 11 a.m. in the East, uh, morning combat. It'll be me. It'll be Brian Campbell. It'll be all of you folks. And we will talk about all of the big action and all of the big results. If you're new here, please thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. We always appreciate that when you do. And until next time, thank you guys so much for watching. This is Sandra Oreda from Attacking Third, a podcast part of the CBS Sports Golazo Network dedicated to all things women's soccer. With the NWSL expanding to 14 teams, the 2024 season promises to be bigger and better than ever, and Attacking Third will be along for the ride from start to finish. Before that, though, we'll be all over the CONCACAF W Gold Cup, where the U.S. Women's National Team is looking to clinch silverware on home soil. We'll also be keeping tabs on the winter transfer window, the Women's Super League, the UEFA Women's Champions League, and elsewhere. Coming to you multiple times a week with game previews, recaps, analysis, breaking news, exclusive interviews, and more. Attacking Third is your one-stop shop for the best coverage of the women's game. Download, follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere podcasts are found. Make sure you subscribe to Attacking Third.